the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And Welcome and thanks again for once again tuning in to a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's first podcast dedicated entirely to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular hosts here on the show, and we are broadcasting, as always, from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. Ginjo is king, or at least that's kind of been a mantra for now several generations of many sake lovers, sake makers, and advocates. Looking at the numbers in recent years, some have actually dubbed this current generation to be the era of Jumai Ginjo. Having become a term that's developed to be nearly a synonym for quality in the world of sake, we thought it would be a worthwhile exercise to maybe remind ourselves and our listeners exactly what it is we're talking about when we talk about Ginjo. This week, John Gauntner has brought Rebecca Wilson Lai and Sebastian Lewan to the party to discuss those things and more. We hope you'll pour yourself a glass of something very Ginjo-esque and come join us. So with that, let's get on with the show. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sake on Air. This episode, we'll be talking about Ginjoshu, or Ginjo Sake, and the title is Ginjo Beneath the Surface. Why this title? Well, over my years in Japan, one thing I've learned is that much about Japan is really simple on the surface. But once you get below that, just under the surface, it's basically anything but simple. Uh, I think the language is that way for sure. Uh, my other deep interest in Japan is sumo, and that's definitely very simple on the surface, but not so much beneath that. And staying focused on tonight's topic, sake is most definitely the same way. I mean, it's basically rice, water, and koji, extremely enjoyable, simple to approach, simple to enjoy, but once you get beneath the surface, it's really, really a very complex topic. My main points for today's discussion are, one, what really makes Ginjo special and the attention to detail that goes into every single step of production, but also I want everyone to remember that Ginjo isn't the only game in town. You should enjoy it and it's a great entry to sake, but don't rush blindly into it, at least not to the exclusion of other types of sake. Joining me on this episode are two regulars on Sake on Air, Rebecca Wilson-Lai and Sebastian Limon. Why don't you guys both say hello? Hello, I'm waving, I'm waving at the screen, but realizing this is a podcast, so you can't see me waving at the screen. Hi, this is Rebecca Wilson-Lai. I'm really glad to be joining this panel with my original sensei, John Gautner. So it's a real pleasure to be taking part and to and enter in what I believe will be a, um, a lively discussion on all things Ginjoshu. Hello, same here. This is um, Sebastian. And I mean, like Rebecca, I mean, we were on the same course, Rebecca, weren't we? We were. And, and I always remember when John uh, says, and you reminded us of that recently, um, well, if you don't know where to start, start with Ginjo. So uh, I guess that's a good starting point for, for this uh, session tonight. Okay, let's dive right into it. Um, one point of note is that we are actually not doing this from the Japan Sake and Shochu Bakers Association from their office like we usually do, but 
uh, due to COVID protocol, we're doing this virtually together. That's the axiomoron of the evening, virtually together uh, as uh, protocol continues to keep us separated. So for the time being, we'll do it from separate locations, but we hope to be able to do it in one room again sometime soon. So diving into what I want to talk about, Ginjoshu. So what is it? And let's talk about it very quickly. Basically, Ginjo is the glitterati of the sake world. It kind of gets all the attention. It gets all the spotlight in the sake world. But interestingly, it's only about 15% of all the sake that's made out there. That's all. And that kind of gets all the spotlight. Still, Ginjo production increases every single year, uh, even as the whole market contracts. So it's a very significant part of the market. While the term itself, in one form or another, uh, goes back a long time, and while it's been seen for a long time here and there, as a viable market presence, Ginjo sake has only been around for a few decades. And to me, that's really interesting. As much of the attention and spotlight as it gets, it's only been around as a viable market product for a few decades. And as a legal classification, even more interesting to me, it's only been around since 1989. Before that, Ginjoshu was not legally defined. Uh, even though it's been around longer than that in, in one way, shape, or form for a long, long time. So the other thing I would say about it is that it's a great place to start when exploring sake as we touched upon. So yeah, you can safely start there. But for heaven's sake, please don't end there. Please don't stop there. The next thing I was going to jump into is some basic Ginjo tech stuff, some admittedly basic Ginjo tech stuff. So Ginjo shoe also very often the shoe is dropped in conversation. Uh, Ginjo, it's also known as, actually has four subcategories. Um, and Ginjo is a collective term for the following four grades. And again, this is basic stuff, but I think a lot of listeners may know it. The four subclasses of Ginjo are one, Ginjo, and then Junmai Ginjo, and then Dai Ginjo, and Junmai Dai Ginjo. Uh, so the difference between, for example, Ginjo and Junmai Ginjo is that Ginjo has a bit of pure distilled alcohol used in the process to help extract more flavors and aromas. Whereas Junmai Ginjo is Ginjo that's made with only rice water and koji, none of that added alcohol. And then Dai Ginjo is basically, and we'll get into this later, Ginjo to die for. In other words, the milling rate used to qualify a sake for Ginjo is even stricter. You have to mill it even more to call something Dai Ginjo, which makes it Ginjo to die for. And then there's Junmai Dai Ginjo, with the difference between that and Dai Ginjo being, again, uh, that Junmai Dai Ginjo is made using rice, water, and koji only, where the non-Junmai manifestation of Dai Ginjo has had a little bit of alcohol added to it during the process to help extract flavors and aromas. So yes, Ginjo is a subclass of Ginjo. It's just something we have to deal with. But think of it this way. Ginjo is a term that can be augmented by the terms Junmai and or Dai if the sake qualifies for those terms. So the term itself, what does the term mean, Ginjoshu? Um, it's kind of an abbreviation of Ginmishite Kamosu. In other words, a, a very loose translation, an admittedly rough translation would be to brew using very, select, very carefully selected methods and ingredients. Um, in other words, to be brewed using very labor-intensive methods with the best raw materials or great raw materials. So stuff brewed using the best raw materials and in very labor-intensive ways. Anybody have a comment at that at this point in time? Not, ne not necessary yet. There's plenty of opportunities to talk a bit later. I, I, I do have a comment, um, actually. Uh, there's a region in Japan, uh, Hiroshima, uh, who likes to say that they are the origin of 
ginjo. And what I mean by that, the origin of the ginjo brewing style. Um, what, what, what do you think? Do you think this is right? Well, certainly the methods that are used in ginjo production were developed in Hiroshima. But that's not to say that they weren't developed simultaneous other places too, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Ginjo, maybe they were the first ones to do it, but maybe in another place in Japan, without knowing what they were doing down in Hiroshima, developed the same methods themselves. So a good way to measure that is if you ask brewers all over Japan if Ginjo was developed in Hiroshima, if you ask brewers outside of Hiroshima if the Ginjo methods were developed in Hiroshima, would they agree? Nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, what I like about the Hiroshima story is that this uh, Ginjo brewing style starting from the necessity to overcome hurdles. And I think that's quite nice. I mean, uh, it, it was maybe easy, if I can use that word, to brew sake in certain environments. But in Hiroshima, it was hard to brew sake because of water in particular. And so um, they had to, to add extra skills to the brewing to produce uh, something refined. For sure, that is true, yeah. So the next thing I wanna talk about, which kind of refers to what Sebastian spoke about earlier is what led to Ginjo? What led to the developments that made Ginjo what it is? Um, and I think there's a handful of them that I like to uh, identify as things that led to Ginjoshu or how we know Ginjoshu today. And the first one of those is in the first third of the last century, circa 1930 or so, the vertical milling machine was developed. Uh, and again, that was developed in Hiroshima by Satake. Um, and these new modern methods or these new modern milling machines uh, allowed brewers to mill the rice much further than they were able to do before. When you mill rice, you've got to be careful that you don't crack it and break it. And these new vertical milling machines, and again, that's literally what they are, vertical where the rice drops down from a hopper onto a grinding stone, uh, allowed brewers to remove more and more of the outside of the grain thereby removing more fat and protein than they were ever able to do before. And this led to lighter, cleaner flavor profiles and brewers wanting to make the most of that. So to me, one of the first things that led to Ginjoshu becoming a viable market presence was uh, modern milling machines that were developed about in the 30s. And then in the 50s, modern yeasts like number seven and number nine that gave us a lot more fruit than they ever had before. Melon, banana, things like that at that time were the main ones. Um, and they needed to ferment at lower temperatures to bring out the esters and aromas from these particular yeasts. So we had rice milling develop, and then we had yeasts be discovered that would lead to fruity aromas if you fermented at lower ginjo temperatures. Uh, and this led to the development of ginjo as well. Then um, in the 1970s, a further technical development was when sake production peaked, which I believe was in 73 or 74, uh, all of a sudden, there were simple technical advances, like the ability to control temperature very precisely, uh, things that they couldn't or wouldn't do before. For example, putting your tank in a room and then refrigerating the entire room or jacketing the tank to control the temperatures really well. So all of a sudden, they could control their temperatures much more precisely. And it didn't matter what the ambient temperature was, or it didn't matter as much. You could ferment to a, a particular curve and therefore lower temperatures, which would make the most of the yeast that we're using and make the most of the high milling rate of the rice. Uh, and so this is the second one. A third thing that uh, I think contributed to the development of Ginjo as an actual market product 
was the national new soccer tasting competition, competition or the Zenkoku Shinshu Kampyokai, which began in 1908 and has run every year with the exception of two since then. Uh, and the contests are basically won by sake, which are on the cutting edge technically of sake. And that usually means very aromatic and very clean. And so those contests kind of drove the Ginjo boom or the Ginjo development. Uh, and that was one more aspect to it. So between milling and yeasts and contests and technology that allowed them to ferment at more precise temperatures, all these things combined technically to lead to make Ginjo shu what it is today. Um, what dates, I mean, it's, 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 a hard, it's a hard question, but um, what do you think uh, is the Ginjo boom period? When, when did it really Ginjo start? Boom? I mean, you, you, you arrived in Japan in what, 1986? Or, or 89, 89, 18, 88, 88. 88? 88. Um, <laughs> Wild. Do, do you think this was the Ginjo boom already? Yeah, I think the Ginjo boom was on then because when I got here in 88, I got into sake soon after that. I could go to places and there was a handful of Ginjo Shu available, readily available anywhere I went. Um, at a uh, huge department store right in Ginza. At the, it's one of the two main ones right there. And I can't remember which one, I just can't remember the name of them, but there was a, I think they called it the Sakagura in the basement. They had a huge refrigerated area uh, of sake. I used to shop there all the time. And that was full of Ginjo. So basically the Ginjo boom was in full swing by 1988, at least in my in my recall. One thing I might add to that is, in addition to temperature control within the brewery, there was also um, the development of temperature controlled domestic logistics. So for example, delivery from the brewery to the distributor or to the sake shop, and then the distributors and the sake shops also having refrigeration, followed by better refrigeration throughout the country in terms of at restaurants and at homes where people could refrigerate and keep their, their sake cool, there became what I know from a, a former student of mine who was a you know, CEO of a top um, company in Japan during the, the boom era. He used to say that, you know, after work, everyone would go out and they would order um, their shoe or chilled sake. That was the that was the fashionable thing to do because this type of ginjo shoe was always or tended to always be served chilled from the refrigerator. And that was seen as a, a very refined, elegant way to drink your sake rather than the maybe room temperature or warmed um, way that had been previously popular um, in Japan. So that's sort of maybe not um, a, a major reason, reason, but I think along with these trends, there were also these other things happening in, in society outside the brewery. I, I think that's a very important point that actually Ginjo, the Ginjo boom influenced the way we drink sake uh, today. Um, I think we, we've often said on that show that kan sake, warm sake is, is coming back. Um, and I guess it's coming back from uh, having been um, affected by the uh, consequences of the Ginjo boom, which is try to drink your sake a little bit cooler to, to get or to keep some of the aromas. And actually it leads to another question, but it's a bit too early maybe in the conversation today is, is the Gijo boom over? And that's, but that's for later, I think. Wow, that's something I hadn't included in the conversation, but we could talk about that. I think as you alluded to, that part of the demise of Kanzake was Ginjo. In other words, there's all this nice fruity, elegant stuff that's better slightly chilled. And this is like, 
premium. So everybody ran to that, and that's a bit of an exaggeration, which kind of began the demise of Kanzake, which I think we saw a revival of Kanzake in the late 90s, thank God for that. Uh, but uh, they almost kind of became diametrically opposed, didn't they? Chilled sake and wonderful warm sake. So yeah, uh, that's another aspect of things that I think is quite interesting. So I'd like to say a bit about the term itself, the word Ginjo, uh, a bit more about it. Um, the term has been around for a while. It actually regularly, not regularly, but appeared from time to time in the early 1900s and even late in the uh, 1800s. The term or some form of the term uh, had actually appeared from time to time. Um, however, it's only been a legally binding term, as I pointed out earlier, since 1989. From the, er, the uh, mid-70s until 1989, it was kind of a self-regulated industry term uh, that everybody agreed upon by consensus. In other words, if you're going to put ginjo on the label, everybody, let's mill it down to 60%. Or dai ginjo, let's mill it down to 50%. Uh, and no uh, other additives other than rice water and koji and perhaps brewer's alcohol. But these weren't legally defined until 1989, which is extremely interesting to me. Uh, so the term kind of stayed internal to the industry for decades. However, the actual first appearance of a product labeled as Ginjoshu, to my research, was in 1947 when a brewer in Chiba making a sake called Kimon Fusamasamune actually used it first. Uh, I believe that they're still around today, by the way. And then after they came out with it, Within about 10 years, there are about 20 companies that were trying to market sake under the term Ginjoshu. Uh, I don't think too many of them had too much success at the beginning just because people weren't ready for this new fame-dangled style of sake. But the term has been around basically that long. Uh, I think it really started to take off in the early 1980s, the Ginjo boom that we were just talking about. During Japan's big economic expansion that continued over that time uh, is when Ginjoshu became more and more available. Uh, and the technical developments in the sake world that we discussed earlier led up to what was called the Ginjo boom. So really, Ginjo in the common parlance as a regularly used word amongst normal, normal people, <laughs> the uh, common population, and as a reasonably easily available class of products has only been around for about 40 years. And I think that's interesting when you look at how much of attention it gets uh, in the sake world. That's interesting that... Um... Ginjo was chosen by the administration, by the NTA, to become the new, uh, or, or be an, impo an important um, class, or an important grade, or series of grade in the new sake classification, because um, uh, it was actually, I mean, it was on labels, but it but this idea of semi buai and was was not in the previous in the previous sake classification. So, a bit of a nerdy question is I'm just wondering how how it came about. I mean, why why that word was selected? I I mean, I've heard urban. I mean, this might be urban myth, but what I'd heard was that in the eighties and with the in the in the bubble era, there was this. Um, wine boom and fascination with Grand Cru wine and premium Cru wine, where people knew by the by the the gradation whether whether they're drinking or refined wine or a pedigree wine or not. There was a, a conversation in the sake community about classifying sake with some kind of Grand Cru, Premier Cru like grading system um, based on certain uh, technical points to allow the consumer to uh, select a product based on maybe the refinement of the product. So 
my question, John, is, is, is this just urban myth that the wine industry um, had some kind of influence on the development of the, 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 of these kind of grades, the separation of the, um, of, and the development of the Ginjoshu um, grade of sake, or was there something else that was the main impetus for this, um, for Ginjoshu grade to be created? I'm sure it isn't purely urban myth. I'll be honest and never heard, I'll be honest and say I've never heard that any brewer decided, look, we need to do what the wine industry is doing uh, and, and find ways to make it easier to choose higher and higher levels of sake. Uh, but I'm sure there was some influence for sure, right? Some concrete classification that allowed people to make decisions uh, that would assure them of a bit more quality. Uh, yeah, I, I, but that's a very important point because um, today, Ginjo tends to mean, uh, for most consumers, uh, Ginjo equals a certain semi-buai. But actually, Ginjo means a certain level or expected uh, quality or um, um, a, a, particular, a particular style. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah, I would agree with that, for sure. It is this kind of identifiable particular style of sake now. Uh, and... I think there's a lot of diversification within that style, a lot of types of ginjo within the ginjo world. But without a doubt, I do agree with what you said about that. So the next thing I wanna talk about again is a little bit more basic ginjo technology. Uh, and to start with this, the main definition of ginjo, uh, in a sense, it's the one that we hear the most, right? I can't put one definition of ginjo legally above another, but the one that we hear the most is the milling of the rice. In other words, the various grades of ginjo are defined by nothing legally more significant than how much the rice has been milled before you begin to brew. And again, very briefly, ginjo and junmai ginjo, you need to mill the rice to a semi boy of 60%. In other words, removing at least the outer 40%. And for dai ginjo and junmai dai ginjo, you need to remove the outer 50%, leaving the no more than the inner 50%. Uh, of the rice there. But these semi buais, these milling rates are minimums, right? You can go to 60 for ginjo and 50 for dai ginjo, but you can go to 35, 23, 18, 8, 7, <laughs> and beyond that for sure. So the milling rate is just a basic definition. There's a whole lot of things that go beyond that. Um, and that's one of my main points. That's the main definition legally of, of ginjo and dai ginjo. But really, what goes into it is so much more beyond that, so much more goes into the production of ginjo and daiginjo than beyond the basic say my boy, the milling rate definition. So much more things like the attention to detail go into making ginjo. And again, the quality of the rice that's chosen, for example, is not part of the definition. You can actually use some, maybe not the best rice available. And if you mill it far enough, legally, you can call it ginjo, but usually that's not gonna happen. With really good ginjo, there's so much more that goes into the practical development of ginjo, like rice quality and attention to detail in every step of the process uh, in the brewing process. So to continue this, for ginjo, everything is done in more labor-intensive ways. Every single, single step of the process is done in much more stressful to the brewer, labor-intensive ways. Um, as some examples, ginjo is generally fermented at lower temperatures than other sake for longer periods of time. Uh, and that's really where the real heart of ginjo production is. It's in the brewing techniques. Uh, some examples that would show us how ginjo brewing techniques are different from the brewing techniques used in other grades of sake is, for example, when you steam rice, when you make sake, before you steam the rice, you need to soak it 
to allow it to absorb a certain amount of moisture. Moisture is really important because it helps the mold, the koji mold, grow onto the rice and give us the enzymes we need for starch to sugar conversion. But soaking the rice, if you're making inexpensive sake or run-of-the-mill regular sake, can be a bit rough. I mean, you'll soak it maybe 500 kilograms or several hundred kilograms at a time. However, when you move into the world of ginjo, you start to soak the rice to get much more precise moisture content. As one extreme example, when you make some of the best ginjo and daiginjo out there, the brewers will soak the rice so that you can actually control the moisture of the rice within one half of 1%. And that would be really, really uniform across, for example, 500 kilograms of rice. It's out of control, precise, it really is. Um, another example of how the precision that goes into the brewing techniques of ginjo as opposed to regular sake is, for example, when you make koji, when you grow the koji mold onto rice, it's going to give us enzymes that we need. That's done in a special room, a room that's warmer and more humid than the rest of the brewery. And you could use machines inside of that room and machines will make great koji. They'll do a really good job. Or you can do it in such a way that it's going to be OK. I mean, you don't have to check it that often. You can keep the temperature fairly precise. Uh, and end up with really good koji. However, when you make the best ginjo or daiginjo, the brewers will use little boxes or trays that, for example, have only 1.5 kilograms of koji rice in there. So if you're making, I don't know, 75 kilograms of particular koji, you've got one, however many, whatever 75 divided by 1.5 is. Somebody do that math for me. You've got all these trays in there and the brewers will go in there and they'll check the trays every two hours, night and day over the 48 hours it takes to make that particular batch of koji. And they're doing one batch after another. So it's massively labor intensive and massively stress, uh, stressful for the brewers that are actually making that. Um, another one might be uh, temperature control. I mean, if you've got a huge tank in which you bring a tank of sake, it's really difficult to make sure that the temperature in the center of the tank is the same as the temperature on the outside of the tank and the temperature at the top and the bottom are, are uniform. So when making ginjo or daiginjo, what they tend to do is to use smaller tanks because it's better and easier to get a much more uniform temperature control uh, throughout the whole tank. Um, and also ginjo and daiginjo will be brewed at uh, lower temperatures. So it's much more low and slow fermentation rather than fast and furious. Um, and so you've got attention to detail making ginjo and daiginjo that's really sometimes insane, incredible attention to detail at every single step of the process. And to me, that is where the real difference between ginjo production and other sake production comes in. Well, of course, when all of this labor-intensive work, all of this attention to detail, precision, time, 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 and extra equipment that's required, you're also the brewers are also having to um, increase the cost of the product as well. So obviously, the end product is going to have to be just based on you know. Um, base costs be more expensive than maybe another kind of sake like a fitsushu or a honjozo or a junmai. So I think sometimes also this perception of um, ginjoshu being the super premium or the best is uh, based on people seeing the sticker price and going, wow, that's expensive. It must be the best. Um, and I think that somehow a little bit of that, the, the cost of the production of Jinmaishu has influenced people's perception of sake as being more expensive, therefore better. Would you agree, John? Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. That was actually going to be my next point, but all of this stuff drives up the price. And often, 
price is connected to quality. Very, very often price is connected to quality. Uh, but I think people forget that the price in sake is actually driven by the labor intensiveness, how much went into it, right? You have to start with better raw materials, throw more of them away because you mill more, and then have a lot more people doing a lot more effort to make the, to make the stuff taste as good as it does. And I think a lot of people look at the sticker price, as you put it, and they don't really realize what drives that. It's not just a matter of pricing to get what they can get. It's because it just costs so much more to do all the labor intensive stuff to make that sake the way it is. I mean, you to, to answer your question, 75 divided by 1.5 is 50. And actually, <laughs> it, it does apply to what you were saying earlier about rice washing and rice soaking. I mean, you had 500 kilos, you need 500 kilos of rice, but actually if you if you bring ginjo sake, ginjo shu, you're gonna do it in batches of 10 kilos. So you've got to do it 50 times. Right. It's the same, it's the same ratio. Right. Um, so it takes maybe not 50 times longer, I mean, or 50 times the time, but but definitely um, a lot of additional effort. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that effort also gets expressed in uniformity of things like temperature and moisture, right? If you got a big mountain of, of koji that you're making, it's going to be okay. <laughs> but if you break that into 50 trays, it's going to be a lot more precise throughout. And like you said, it's probably not 50 times the effort, but it's close to 50 times the effort. Uh, and that will reflect itself both in terms of flavors and aromas, but also in price uh, for sure. Uh, one, one thing I'd, li I'd like to add, and it's related to something um, Rebecca was telling us uh, offline earlier is, um, we discussed a bit of, about rice milling and how the rice milling limit went down um, to basically zero uh, these days. You mentioned 50, 35, 23, 18, 7, and actually zero for, for, for koji. It, it, it does exist. But um, in, in temperature, it's been a little bit the same as well. I mean, um, my image of uh, traditional sake brewing is to let the fermentation develop in a temperature about, say, up to 15, 17, 18 degrees. But if you if you want to stay in the Ginjo, the Ginjo world, you, you tend to be at much lower levels, um, say 8 to 12. Uh, am, am, I, am I right, John? I think that's but, correct. Yeah, probably closer to 10 to 12 in my perception, but yeah. You, you, what, what you were saying, Rebecca, earlier was, was very interesting and how, how, so, how some breweries are um, experiencing with, with much, much lower temperature for, for ginjo brewing. Well, if I, can, if I can unpack that a little bit, because the people who are listening to this weren't in our, um, in our backyard conversation. Um, what I was talking about was, we're talking about the perception of Genjoshu as premium and how it's hard to define what premium is because one brewer's premium is not necessarily another brewer's premium. And my experience of Genjoshu full on really happened probably in about 2007 when Dasai started to really market their sake and they did an excellent job of consumer research, finding out what the consumer wanted. And the feedback was that their target market, which was a younger audience, wanted a lighter bodied sake that was aromatic and easy to drink and didn't you know, was could be enjoyed um, like you could enjoy a wine. And taking that market research, I mean, this is oversimplifying the Dasai story enormously, but they went in to create, you know, their, change their production to all Ginjoshu, specifically Jumai Daiginjo, and they created differentiation within their lineup by the different polishing rates. So, you know, from 
that went increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller until it went down to their lowest rate, which was sonosake, which is an undefined polishing rate. And I think that incredible success of Desai's story, the incredible popularity, and this association with this luxurious image that they produced and, and the increasing um, um, premiumness that they promoted with each new release with smaller and smaller semi-boy sake rice, supported a perception in the market that the lower the semi-boy, the better quality the sake was. And this sort of started to get taken to its most extreme when other breweries put out an eight, and then a few years later, another brewery put out a 7% semi-boy, Jumai Daiganjo. And around that time, there was people were commenting, oh, it can't go any lower than this. It's ridiculous. It can't get any lower than this. At that time, the um, the son of the CEO of Desai put out a, a, a April 1st comment on Facebook saying that Desai was going to release a 0% semi-boy sake, which I immediately replied to, oh my God, really? How do you do that? How do you do the koji? Like my mind was kind of blown. And he said, Rebecca, look at the data. It's an April Fool's dope. Fool's joke, but I think that somewhere along the way, Ginjoshu being a category and a style of sake with a certain kind of flavor profile got hijacked with a conversation about semi boy and the better the, the lower the semi boy, the better the sake had to be. I've, I've heard that from at Kraus Sake Week. I have, you know, punters coming up and asking me what I recommend. I'm saying, oh, how about this? How about that? And they said, oh, do they make a Jumai Daganjo? I only drink Jumai Daganjo. And I'm like, why? And they would say, well, I only drink the best. The lower the semi-boy, the better. And I'm realizing, wow, that conversation mm. has, you know, the the marketing of the Ginjoshu grade was excellent for connecting with new audiences but it's also as as john has, has said to us it's a double-edged sword it's a slippery slope it's created this other narrative which is that the lower the semi-boy the better the sake the higher the price the better the sake which is not i think the way forward but i just came to this conversation from a tasting of a sake brewery's um genjoshu which is brewed at minus 10 degrees and I'm still learning about the techniques that have gone into it and exactly how it works um, but it sounds like there is there is there is other opportunities for sake brewers to um, elevate their genjoshu that is not involving semi-boy um, that is maybe actually getting closer to the original um, genjo shikome which is using low temperature techniques and more time to create sake because this particular sake is brewed at around about minus 10 degrees and it takes six months to brew. So it's really taken that ginjo technique to the next level, which I think is really interesting. It's going to be curious because I think they're just exchanging one dubious direction for another. <laughs> you know indeed, I mean? <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, extremism is extremism yeah. in any way is is not ideal. Right, right. Um, what I'm just saying is I've just come from a tasting of that. So it has kind of like, wow, okay, this is another direction that we're yeah. moving. And maybe, who knows, maybe it's just one brewery with an idea. But you know, it's I I guess I'm just relieved that it's not just another conversation about semi boy. Yeah, related to that, a couple of things I would I would chime in on is, uh, with all respect to uh, Dasai, I really think 
they had a lot to do with it. But I think the real driving force was the Zen, Zenkoku Shinshu Kampyoka, the National New Sake Tasting Competition, because I think more and more brewers to win that realized that if they milled the rice further and they used a formula YK35 or Yamada Nishiki, K is Q or yeast number nine, and the same I boy of 35%, they could pretty much get aromatic clean sake. So they would mill it down to 35%, which was beyond anything on the market. Nothing that any consumer would really want to drink, right? Wrong. But at the time, I think that was a driver for getting the same boy further and further along, um, meaning more and more milled rice. I think that was the real driver, at least in my opinion. But then, of course, um, Dasai kicked that into high gear, took it to another level by milling to 23. And then, of course, they had to be outdone <laughs> by 18, but 17, I mean, 8, 7, 1, and I 0. Have got, I have got massive respect because this conversation isn't about, you know, Dasai did not create this narrative of people assuming that the lower the semi-boy, the better. This, I think this was a narrative that was maybe a misunderstanding um, that created a perception that has sort of had children and, 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 and gone wild around the world. Um, I, I mean, Desai has done an amazing job at creating an image for their brand and sharing their vision and their, um, their sake brand story with the world. Maybe as educators, it's, it's our responsibility to correct that imbalance. I absolutely do think that that's the truth, actually. I mean, I remember my next anecdote was going to be that I remember seeing a picture of uh, uh, of someone's wedding. And I know, I don't know the person personally, but I know that they're very into sake. And they had a big ice bucket with a bunch of big ishobin, 1.8 liter bottles of sake in there. And in white magic marker or something, they had written on the bottle, the same ibuai. Uh, so whether or not the brand name was there, whatever or not this was there, the gray, whatever, it just, it would say like, 55, 35, 40, as if that was the only thing you really had to look at, right? Big white letters that the someone at the wedding had written on the bottle and say, don't worry about anything, just pay attention to this. This is all you really need to know. And it's like, no, 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 no. And I really believe that that has gotten out of control. There's definitely too much focus on that. Uh, and we do need to do our best to encourage people to take a step back away from paying attention only to the Jinmai Ginjo. I'm sorry, to the Semai Boy. But it, it is happening. It, it, I mean, I, I really think that it is, it is actually happening. I think the pendulum has shifted back. Um, maybe it started as a counterculture, but it shouldn't be called counterculture because it's, it's, it's not against anything. But um, we, especially, I mean, I, I don't know if it's especially overseas. That might be a bit of a stretch, but um, I, I do see a number of um, consumers and friends, sake lovers, who go all the way back towards um, promoting, um, in particular, very high semi-boy sake. And, and that's something which is, I find really fascinating and interesting. And I mean, there are lots of reasons for that. If I mean, one, I think one, one, I think very good reason for that is I do find that rice as a raw material has gained quite a bit in um, nobility in, in the sake brewing. Um, what I mean by that is I see more and more consumers interested in, in the rice that has been used to brew the sake. And of course, that was the case earlier as well with, with premium Yamada Nishiki from, from Hyogo used to brew uh, uh, ginjo, ginjo shu, and uh, ginjo in particular, but um, for good reasons, I think this local 
jimoto, so local rice um, cultivated near the brewery suddenly starts to be quite noble. And, and if you've got something noble, and if you've got something um, organic in particular, or at least uh, quasi-organic, um, why do you want to polish it too much? <laughs> and, and I guess that, that, that cement, that uh, reasoning has, has started to, um, to, to, to get the pendulum to, to shift a little bit the other way around. Well, I mean, it's in the last 10 years, all industries have been affected by this conversation. We're all much more Absolutely. conscious of environmental issues. We're all much more conscious of provenance, of sustainability. We're all much more careful, well, some of the time, careful about purchasing um, products that have, you know, less additives or less intervention. Um, and the same time over the last 10 years, we've seen, you know, the continued um, popularity of natural wine and that's a conversation which is a, really about letting the raw materials um, sing and enjoy the natural flavor and expression of the grapes from that region without any tincture um, or um, intervention from the brewers heavy intervention from the brewer's hand and I mean I think it's 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 not wine influencing sake or anything other. I think just as a zetgeist, we are in this moment of this kind of um, shift in our thinking. And also at the same time in the industry, there's been a much more development at a regional level of regional rice styles that are suitable for sake brewing. There are also more junmai being developed. And one of the things that I've noticed over the um, last 10 years is there's been this gradual shunning. And again, I think this might be a, a perception issue of the ginjo, the non-junmai, the two grades that are non-junmai in the ginjo shu um, group um, by a large majority of my international friends, because they've found out that the non-junmai sake has a small amount of brewer's alcohol added which is perceived to be like an additive or it, making that that those particular categories of sake daiginjo and ginjo unpure or not pure as opposed to the junmai or pure rice varietals the junmai daiginjo and junmai ginjo that are in the same grade so i have noticed that there has been a, a in, People will say, oh, no, I don't want to drink the ginjo. I'd rather drink the junmai ginjo because I only want to drink pure rice sake varietal, which, again, is um, I can understand that perception, but it is a little bit, a little bit maybe misguided, I wonder, because such a small amount of brewer's alcohol is added. It's such a tiny amount. It does very little to actually shift the alcohol level up. Um, in the final product and it really is just a technique to polish the aroma and polish the flavor and in fact in blind tastings that I do predominantly more often than not the daiginjo and the ginjo actually get more hands up for the, the preferred um, option so um, I have noticed that um, shift if have any of you guys got any comments or thoughts or experiences? No, absolutely. On that? Statistically, it's definitely correct. If you look at Tokteme Shoshu, there's more of a shift to Junmai. It's not massive, but it's steady. Uh, the Junmai Ginjo and the Junmai Da Ginjo, as opposed to the added alcohol versions, which I agree is a bit of a shame. <laughs> 
especially because people always ask for a dry style sake. They're like, I want a dry style sake. So, oh, have this ginjo. It's great. It's got a nice crisp finish. They say, oh, no, I don't want anything with alcohol added. And like, you just ask for something, but now you don't want it. So it's, I'm trying to recommend things that like are specifically pointed to your, your preferred flavor profile, but this perception of ginjo not, the ginjo not being pure is pushing people away from it. So again, I think that that's an education as educators. Maybe we need to be clarifying this a little bit better for the market. And one one small point that um, um, can be highlighted as well is is often brewer's alcohol is not uh, from made and is not made from from rice and is not made in Japan. And that's one I think one of the angles that are that are uh, that is used as well to um, try to um, how to say to justify justify mm -hmm. or uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah the this lower image of um, of of, Look, of I've been I've been I've been really okay. trying to get this movement of getting aruten sake, like futsushu, honjozo, made with local rice, like distilled distilled liquor that's made from local rice, from broken up grains, from cheap rice, getting that to be the standard um, white liquor that's used um, as an addition. I, I really believe this could be the, a great an answer for the sake industry, but also for farmers in Japan. Yeah, it's going to um, happen. I mean, guys, I'm sure it's going to happen. Off on a tangent, that could be a whole nother sake mm. on your episode. Yeah. Yes. But I agree. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a while because just bringing in stuff distilled from sugarcane is so cheap. Even if you use, like you said, the broken worst rice available, brew that, distill it, and use that as the alcohol. I think that's a brilliant solution for both uh, helping the, the sake industry as well as helping the rice growing industry. It sounds brilliant. I don't see it happening soon, but I would like to see it move in that direction. So, um, the other thing I was going to say about that, Eto, and I lost the thought. Uh, that would be cool if they could do that. What else do you want to tell us about Ginjo, well, John? One, one thing I wanted to make sure I said is that uh, one of my main points for the evening is Ginjo is not unequivocally better. There, I said it. <laughs> it's not unequivocally better. It's not the absolute best choice for all people at all times in all situations. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing to say. It does get all the spotlight, even though it's only 15% above the market, all groups together. But that doesn't mean that all sake before Ginjo came into the market and that all sake that isn't Ginjo is not good, not by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Ginjo may be more refined, lighter, a bit more aromatic, very commonly, maybe a bit more broad and deep. Uh, however, and it's certainly more expensive to make, and by that lone dubious standard, it's better in an economic sense, or at least in a technical sense, that it's not intrinsically superior, but it's much more uh, just an expression of preference. And I think that's a really important point that we need to drive home about Ginjo. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, I, I mean, I don't even look at the grades. It's, it's all about the experience in the glass. And I think that that's a really important thing to approach sake, not by looking at the grades, but by the flavor profile you may find that you are consistently being drawn to the ginjushu group maybe that is maybe that's your jam maybe you're finding yourself more often drawn to the junmai or the honjas or the futsushu group 
if that's your jam, great. Whatever it is that gets you on the sake bridge and across into sake land, I am totally happy. But I really think that there are these there are these classifications that have been um, kind of they're up and don't get distracted by the name. Just focus on the experience in the glass. Where where you drink it and what you drink it with and at what temperature you drink it are all, I mean, great factors to play with and um, and and different grades, different sake will um, have a better a better role um, in in different situations. Now, just one point here I wanted to make as well is we discussed a lot about uh, drinking ginjo sake uh, cold, uh, but there are actually very good ginjo sake that um, can be enjoyed at warm temperatures. Absolutely. And, 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 and heat, yeah, I mean, definitely. I just did a tasting of Yurokobi Gaijin, and that sake is sake that you really want to put in a warm bath to, to mellow out. I mean, there is also, I guess, you know, I feel sorry for some brewers that make a more robust, full-bodied, powerful style of sake because if they label it as Jumai Daganjo, people are probably think it's, it smells like tutti frutti, um, you know, orange juice, and um, it's got a, it's got very little body. But so again, I mean, every there are one, over one thousand three hundred brewers in Japan. They've all got a different brewing style. So these classifications shouldn't limit your perceptions of what sake can be and will be in the glass. Um, I would add to that a couple of things. One is that one of the most enjoyable things, one of the most challenging, enjoyable, fun things you could do in the sake world is to have somebody put a glass in front of you and not tell you anything about it. And just say, taste this and talk to me. And you don't know whether it's Aruten or Jinmai. You don't know what this mailing rate is, what the rice is. To me, that is so enjoyable and really, really pure, pure uh, tasting. Um, I'd also add that I think people's preferences change, right? So for example, I'm pretty sure I was lured into the sake world by Ginjo and Namazake. Um, but my preferences have changed over the years. I mean, I've put on 30 years in the last 30 years. <laughs> the kind of sake I like to drink changed along with that. And I think everybody's preferences will change over time. Um, and I think that's an important point to remember. And the third point, I'm deliberately putting time in here so they can cut this and move it around if necessary, is I think we're starting to see not a lot, but a little bit, a very, very slow movement away from the grades by brewers themselves. And I've heard a lot from brewers where they say, look, they try and sell something to a distributor or a, or a restaurant chain, and the purchaser will make a decision based on the Say My Boy. So I'm not giving you any more than 1,800 yen for that for a Say My Boy at 55, right? And like, did you taste it? So not a lot. I would say in my knowledge, maybe five brewers, there's probably more that I don't know about. I say, okay, I'm not telling you nothing. It's all Futsushu. I'm not telling the same Ibuai. I'm not, there is no grade on this. Shut up and drink it. If you want to buy it, don't uh, buy it. If you don't, don't, someone else will. And I think that's a great show of confidence and it does call for some, some courage. Um, and I think more and more brewers are going to move in that direction slowly over the next 10 years or so. Well, with our exports, we don't actually list the semi boy on the bottle and we don't use the semi boy in any of our literature it's all about the aroma and the flavor and pairings like what what the sake could potentially pair well with because we're trying to remove this this distortion distorted narrative of the semi boy being the 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 way you grade or you you appraise a sake you appraise a sake by how much you enjoy it 
if you, if it's if it vibes with you, it vibes with you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's got nothing to do with the polishing weight. I agree with that 100% for sure. But I mean, f- frankly speaking, people don't want to bother to study. And I include myself in that number mm. outside of sake, right? Like, I don't know yep. jack about wine. I want somebody to tell me what to drink. <laughs> and there's like all this information I could say. It's like, yeah, but you can just tell me what to drink. I'm fine, you know. I got, you know, enough alcohol and only one liver in seven days in a week. I got a limit. I'll study this stuff. You tell me what to drink. I think a lot will always have that sector of the market that doesn't want to bother to study. It doesn't want to bother to educate. And for that sector of the market, which is a valid sector, will need the classifications and things like the same Ibuai and Ginjo and Daiginjo, at least for a while. If we require education to sell every bottle, to clarify every bottle, we're never going to grow the industry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So there needs to be another, I mean, that's why I feel as that's why I feel as though, you know, marketing is a really important one. Doing what decided, getting their story out there, the brand story, educating yeah. people at, at the restaurant level, at a distribution level, about their story, what they're doing, what their aims are, what their flavor profiles are. You know, that I think brewers just don't have the time or the budget or the know-how to do the marketing to yeah. to to explain this their sucker to the end consumers. So you know, the, the the grading system has been a way to create some kind of market differentiation, I suppose. That, that's also very valid. I mean, I remember listening to one importer in the U.S. where someone was trying to get him to import her sake. And he looked at it, he tasted it, he says, this is really good. He says, but I've already got 30 Junmai Ginjo that taste similar in terms of quality and are all around the same price point. What am I going to say that's going to help this sell too, right? And you need a story, you need, you need something catchy, you need marketing, you need packaging, all the slick marketing stuff that we wish didn't have to be applied to sake, <laughs> but actually does. But every other product in the world yep. requires it, you know? Yep. So why, yep. why is the sake industry, it ain't. We have, we, we're asking ourselves in the sake industry, why are we so slow out of the gate on this? Yeah. You know? Right. Right. Uh, but it's interesting to see how overseas markets uh, can be different. I mean, if you look at figures for volumes and value, you don't you don't get the same order uh, between between the various countries. I mean, um, the US uh, got back number one in volume last year, right? Um, but it's number two in value uh, right. behind China. Right. It's interesting to see how uh, a lot of factors are actually influencing um, the what's available in the market um, and and basically the perception of, of, of sake as well in, in individual countries. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, although we went about it in a little bit of a roundabout direction, I pretty much covered the things that I wanted to say. And again, my main points were that although the main legal definition of, of Ginjo is the same Ibuai, the milling rate, what really makes it special is the attention to detail, the ridiculous, insane attention to detail that goes into every single step of the brewing process. And that's what drives it to be the style of sake it is. And that's what makes it more expensive. And the other thing was, it's not unequivocally better than other sake. All sake have their merits and every grade has wonderful sake within it. Uh, and although the classifications of Ginjo and Daiginjo are a great entry point to sake. We should definitely not hang out there too long. We should move beyond Ginjo and move beyond uh, the same Ibuai. Well, John, I mean, so many, well, not so many, but there is definitely a trend of breweries not um, announcing the same Ibuai on their labels at all. 
then then it has so to many, be then it has to be so pursued many, illegally. In other words, they can't. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. How? And that is, um, it's. I mean, I hope that we can get to a place where we can just talk about the sake that a brewer is creating based on its flavor profile and its expression rather than on on some of the technical um, definitions or categorizations of the sake. But the fact that brewers are having to do this shows that there is, um, a, there is a sense in the sake community that the way forward is not with these kind of categorizations for some brewers, for some brewers, yeah, not right. for all brewers. There's, there's for some, some that will benefit from continuing that. Uh, but mm. there's certainly a large sector that will benefit from slowly moving away and prying themselves away from that kind of a thing. I agree with that. There really is no right or wrong of right. whether you like a genjoshu or not, right? We, we can certainly, you know, drive that point home by saying, hey, drink whatever you want for whatever reason you want to drink it. <laughs> you know, you don't need our approval and you don't need anybody else's. If you want to drink ginjo, only do it. Uh, we think you might be depriving yourself of some wonderful other sake, but by all means, if you want to drink something, drink it for whatever reason you want to drink it. Absolutely. It's all about enjoyment. However you derive that, however you derive that. The world of Ginjo is really a two-edged sword. It makes getting into sake really easy. It's something to recommend, and almost no one is going to be disappointed if they start with Ginjo. However, it can limit people. It can put blinders on people because that's all they end up drinking. It can restrict them from trying all kinds of interesting sake. So in the end, yeah, drink lots of great sake. Ginjo is a great place to start, but certainly don't stop there. Okay, well, thanks for your leadership tonight, John. <laughs> You're welcome, but I'm not so sure it was very good leadership. Thank you guys for your participation. No, it was uh, really fun. I actually learned. I actually learned a lot, so it was really, it was really great to be part of. Thank you. Yeah, very much my pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. So, everybody, I'll see you guys soon. I hope stay healthy, stay well. Uh, the uh, at the Mayambuji has been extended to March six, so. I probably won't be seeing you anytime soon, but I'll be in the country until the 15th. Hopefully I can see you before it's all over. Well, see you for the Shinenkai in 2023. Yeah, <laughs> probably, probably. All right, you guys, everybody take care. Thanks very take much. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. Let's Bye. Bye. And that will do it for one more episode here at Sake on Air. Now, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and sharing with us your own Ginjo-related experiences over on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you can find us at at SakeOnAir. When you're done with that, feel free to go and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening service. And if you have any other questions or comments, you can reach out to us at questions at SakeOnAir. SakeOnAir is made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with audio production by Mr. Frank Walter. We will be back with more Sake on Air here once again before you know it. Until then, kanpai.